0: It's been a, a somewhat cliché illustration, which I usually don't like to use as much as possible, but they're cliché for a reason. They, they have a good point. Um, but, but one of the cliché illustrations that I've heard over the years is to remind, uh, remind us that uh, you know, the sun is always shining, right? The sun's always shining light and heat. It's always coming from the sun. And as light and heat comes from the sun and lands on the earth, it it has a different effect on what it lands on, right? So it's the same sun that, thank God, is shining right now that is melting the snow and the same sun that it'll land on certain things and it will soften plastic, but that same exact light and heat will also land on mud and clay and harden it and turn it into brick. Um, and, you know, we, we kind of know that to be true, and we kind of have, I'm sure all of us have experienced something similar um, in our own lives, where we've been talking to someone and we're saying things that we always say to them, but for some reason that day, that moment, the things that you said caused them to snap. And they're angry and they're ticked off and you go, I I don't know what I just did. I have said this a bunch of times to you before. I don't know why why are you mad? I, I don't understand. These are the same words I've been saying a bunch of times. What changed? Well the person changed, right? The subject matter changed. They're, they're in a, their life has changed. They're in a different situation. And so those same words went out and landed on a different subject matter, landed on a different material, and caused a different effect. And, you know, sometimes, I think it's, I think it's important to know that sometimes it is your fault. <laughs> sometimes you should have known better than to say those words at that point in time. You should have known that those words aren't going to be received that well. But it's not always your fault that 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 happens. Sometimes you're actually saying the very words that need to be said in that moment, and it's what's going on inside that person and inside their heart and their emotions that's causing them to refuse to, to receive those words. And it's actually something that's going on inside of them that's causing your words to, to make them angry or frustrated or even to get, to be hardened. And so sometimes your words weren't the problem. Sometimes it was someone else's heart that was the problem. And I say that because I think it's important for us uh, to remember that, especially, especially in the Midwest, I know like Minnesota has tried to market it as like Minnesota nice, um, kind of acting like Wisconsinites aren't nice, but there's no difference. And so I always call it like Midwest nice. There's something in us that we just, we, we feel like we, 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 niceness is like the epitome of what we have to be. And, and the reality is it's not just a Midwest thing. I think it's, accentuated in the Midwest, but but there's been a lot of talk lately about how just the the church in the United States has kind of added an 11th commandment, which is, thou shalt be nice. And so most people are kind of holding a a ton of things up to this standard that, well, if it's not nice, it must be wrong. And, And what ends up happening is, is if you say something to someone and they go, well, that wasn't very nice. What happens, especially in the Midwest, we start to go, oh no, I should have said something different. Maybe I said the wrong thing. Or, or you'll say something, and some will say, that wasn't nice. Other people will say, you should have said it differently. You should have changed the way you said it. You should have said it nicer so they would have received it better, and, and they would have understood that you were actually trying to be nice. But, but we know that's not always the case, right? Um. We also see the, the same kind of an attitude happen when we talk about um, sharing our faith or sharing the gospel out in the community. Um, you'll, you'll run into people who are wanting to passionately share the gospel. They're out in the community. They're sharing the gospel. They're trying to do what they can to share the gospel. And people are not believing in the gospel. And some people are getting angry at them for sharing the gospel. And what I see often is people have a gut reaction to say, well, then you must be doing it wrong. Because if you were doing it right, people would be believing. If you were just a nicer, if you were more winsome, if you were more clever, if you were gentler, then people would have heard the message, their heart would have been softened by what you were having to say, and they would have believed it. But we know that's not always true. Um, th- there's one thing we can be really confident of, absolutely certain, and that is that Jesus Christ was perfect, right? He was without sin. He knew no hardening people's hearts. It had the exact opposite effect that we would have expected Jesus Words and actions to have. And, and we see that in a couple of ways in this morning's passage. One, one is what Jesus says. He says, the one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I've spoken will judge him on the last day, right? And so Jesus says there, there are going to be people that he went out into the world to, he talked and he preached and he shared the gospel with them, shared the good news with them, and they're going to not listen to him. They're not going to believe his word. They're not going to receive it. And the only effect his word is going to have on those people is what? That it's going to come back on them in judgment. The only effect his word is going to have on these people is that it will actually continue to harden their heart. And judge them. Uh, John, the, the kind of the gospel writer gives us a clearer example of what's going on. And, and he does it by quoting a pretty a pretty well-known passage um, from the book of Isaiah. It's this big vision that happens in Isaiah, right? Most people have heard it's where. Isaiah says, I saw the Lord seated on the throne, high and lifted up, and the, 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 the row, or the train of his robe filled the temple, right? And there's seraphim around the throne, and the seraphim are crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory, and you know, and Isaiah sees this picture, and he falls on his face and says, Woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. And in the process of that, God says, "Who should I send out into the world? Who should I send to go to go preach to my people?" And He says, "Here I am. send me." right And we we stop there uh, because that's all really... Like, we see this beautiful picture of God, this, like, contrite heart of Isaiah, this worship of God, his dedication. But we don't usually go to the very next few verses where God says to Isaiah, here's the message I'm going to give you to preach to the world, and here's what's going to happen as you preach it. God says, go, say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. We don't see that as being very beautiful, so we stop. (laughs) Because Isaiah is saying, all right, Lord, I'm going to follow you, I'm going to go where you told me to go, I'm going to say what you told me, all right, all the... And God says, okay, so here's the message I'm going to preach. You're going to go. You're going to preach to my people, and nobody's going to listen to you. Not a single one. There will be no fruit to your ministry. And what actually makes it worse, notice notice what God says is going to happen as Isaiah preaches this. I missed it. Up until this week as I was studying it. God says, here's the message I'm giving you to preach, and here's the effect of that message. So the message, he says, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive, right? That's the message that he's supposed to bring. And here's what it's going to do. Then he says, Isaiah, as you preach this message, make the heart of this people dull, their ears heavy and blind their eyes. As Isaiah preaches this message, his message is actually going to harden the hearts of God's people. Their hearts are going to be dull, their ears are going to be heavy, their eyes are going to be blinded, and they will not turn and be healed. So not only is he not going to see any fruit, But the more he does ministry, the harder people's hearts are going to become. And what John does in his gospel, he takes this passage, and, and he quotes it, and he kind of applies it to Jesus' ministry. He says, therefore they could not believe. For remember what Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart." And turn, and I would heal them. And John's applying it to Jesus' ministry and saying, as Jesus speaks and acts in the world, he's having the same effect that Isaiah had. He's blinding people's eyes and hardening their hearts. And does that mean Jesus did the wrong things? No. Does that mean that Jesus said the wrong things? Maybe he said the wrong message? No. Does it mean he should have been more winsome? No. It's why John is like, he begins the passage, he's kind of, I couldn't think of a better word than just Flabbergasted, which is kind of a fun word, but he's just, he just can't believe this, right? He says, like, though Jesus had done so many signs before them, they still didn't believe, right? He says, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah, this is in a different passage, might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what, what he heard from us, and whom, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And it's John's way of saying, I just, I can't get it. I don't understand. Like, Jesus has been right in front of these people doing powerful signs and miracles. He, he just raised a guy from the dead. And yet, they don't believe. And if they won't believe, if they've seen him raise somebody from the dead, how would anybody ever believe Right, we struggle with that, I think, right? We we kind of feel this tension down inside of us because on the one hand, especially after after we've become a Christian, we're like, Okay, this is like powerful Great stuff, right? Like, w- when I look to Jesus Christ in faith, I was cleansed from my guilt. I was, I was forgiven and I was restored and I was renewed. And now I have, like, the Lord is my shepherd and I shall not want and he leads me and he guides me and he gives me everything I need. And we have the opportunity to come into worship and, and, and pray to the God of the universe. Like, it's cool. Like, this is crazy stuff. Why wouldn't people believe in this? And so when we go out and we share the gospel and people don't believe in it, we go, we have to be doing it wrong. Because this is so great. Why wouldn't anybody believe in this? Maybe, maybe we're saying the wrong thing. Maybe we need to change the message a little bit so that people will believe it. Like maybe we shouldn't go out and preach the gospel. Maybe we should just talk about how nice Jesus is. Because people like a nice Jesus. And the reality is the moment, the moment we change the message, we lose the message, right? Um, the moment you try to change the gospel, you lose the gospel. And, and the moment you lose the gospel, the moment you lose salvation. Um, and then there is no gospel, right? And, and the requirement of the gospel is really basic, um, what the, the the common phrase throughout the New Testament is, you know, at Pentecost, people cry out to Peter, What should we do to be saved? And he said, Repent and believe. It's the message of the gospel. And in order to tell people to repent and believe, you have to help them understand that they are sinners. And they need to repent of sin. And people don't like that. Don't believe that. We don't believe that we have a natural tendency to hate God and our neighbor. Um, And the reality is the message isn't the problem. The gospel's not the problem. Um, Most often, most often, it's the hearts of people receiving the message. Um, And it's one of the tough teachings of this passage is that hard hearts cannot receive the gospel. Um, and that sounds strong, but that's what. Um, and yet, Scripture says this. This is the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans. What should we say? Is there injustice on God's part? Is this not fair? By no means. Or another way of saying, no way. For God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will. It's not about us. But it depends on God who has mercy. So God has mercy on whom he wills, and he hardens whom he wills. That's hard for us. And it keeps going on because what I love about this passage, you could tell Paul has had a lot of the same kind of conversations that I've had over the years. Um, So he just brings up the next part. He says, I know what questions in your mind. And so let me just say it. He says, here's what you're going to say to me. Why does God still find fault? Because who can resist his will? And then he says, who are you, old man, to answer back to God. Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? This is a, a repeated response in Scripture. Um, on the one hand, does God have a right to do this? Um, Is it unfair or unjust for God to do this? Um, But the more pointed question that, that, or the more pointed answer that Scripture gives is not one that we appreciate, is not to even answer necessarily whether God's good or just or right to do this. The answer is, who do you think you are to try to put God in the judgment seat and even question whether he's good or right to do what he wants to do? You are a sinful, finite human being, and you think you can look at God and try to judge whether He's doing a good job at this or not. Uh, That's—I mean—that's like if you want the, the the summary of the Book of Job in one sentence. That's God. That's the sentence. God saying to Job, "Oh, really? Did you make the world?" <laughs> and it's hard for us. It's hard for us to get to the place of where we go, I am just a lump of clay. And God is the maker. And he can do what he wants to do. And who am I to question him in that? Now, we have to get that implanted deep, deep down here before I move on to the next part where I start to explain it a little bit more. But if you don't get that deep down in here and get to the point where you can say, I'm not the one to question God, um, then you start twisting all the rest of this in lots of different ways because it is more complicated than that. And God is just and we can understand some of that. But, But you first have to get to the point of just recognizing God is God and we are not. I'm going to share a couple quotes from a couple of the commentators, and you could see how they're trying to, I mean, I could spend like three or four weeks trying to weed through all of the nuance of how this works, but I'm just going to share a couple quotes so you can see how they're trying to kind of answer some of this. Uh, Herman Ritterbach said, Unbelief is not therefore blamed on God in a predestinarian sense. Unbelief is not, God doesn't handle unbelief the same way that he handles calling and choosing people to be saved. It's different. He says, it's rather described as a punishment from God, right? He abandons unbelieving people to themselves, thus confirming them in their evil, blinding their eyes and hardening their hearts as a result of which whatever God gives them to see and hear can no longer lead to salvation, that is to repentance and healing. We still don't like that answer. But the reality is, is, what he's saying is, there's a sense in which, this is what the catechism was talking about earlier. Is it God's fault that we're so sinful? No. Whose fault is it? It's our fault. And, and what happens is, at when people say, I don't want to follow God, I reject God, I hate him. God says, okay, I'll let you do that then. And the further you go down that road, the harder your heart gets. Or Calvin says it in one sentence it's their own fault, therefore, if God does not choose to convert them because they were the cause of their own despair. See that? You could see, like, who got ourselves in this position in the first place? We did. God hardens hearts, and, and so the, the tension in, in all of this is, is to make sure that we understand that God is sovereign and in control, right? The catechism says, not a hair can fall from your head apart from the will of God. And yet, we don't therefore just sit back and say, well, if God's in control, then I guess I don't have to do anything. I'm not part of that. There, there's a tension in all of this. Which, So on the one hand, Scripture says, God hardens hearts, but on the other hand, Scripture says, Guess who also hardens hearts? We do. We harden our own hearts to God. And I'm going to give one example of how we do that. I think it's probably one of the most common ways that we harden our hearts, and it's one of the most clear ways in Scripture. It's from Hebrews 3. It says this, Exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin right so so the clear teaching right how is your heart hardened by sin and he says the solution to that is what to be exhorted to be corrected to be rebuked for your sin and not tomorrow <laughs> today because the sooner you get corrected for your sin the quicker you're going to be able to repent of that but the longer it takes for you to be corrected for your sin guess what happens the harder your heart becomes The longer you remain in a sin, the harder your heart becomes. And then what happens is, the harder it becomes to to repent of that sin. Um, Anyone who's ever struggled with just flat-out addiction knows that to be true in an addictive sense. The longer you find yourself swirling down the path of addiction, the harder it is to come back out of it. Right? Um, It's the same with sin. The further you swirl down the path of sin and the further you keep kind of coddling this sin and saying, well, I don't have to repent of it today. Maybe, maybe tomorrow I'll repent of it. The longer you do that, the harder your heart becomes. And the harder it is for you to repent of that and it becomes that same downward spiral where your heart gets harder and harder and harder and harder. Um, it is a, it's a terrifying uh, reality. And I think it's, it's one of the primary ways that our hearts are hardened today uh, because, of especially, because of that whole idea of niceness because we don't often correct people for their sin because we're afraid we're not going to be nice when we do that. It doesn't feel nice to correct. Nobody wants to correct anybody of their sin, right? Um, and so we don't I mean, think about, when was the last time someone came up to you and said, that was a sin, and you should, you should repent of that? And as a result of that, we're not being corrected for our sin, and so what happens? Our hearts get harder and harder and harder and harder. Or, another way that that happens is, um, we see this in, um, this can get applied to so many different things. I'm going to give you two examples. One is not attending church regularly, right? We stop attending church. You come to church, what happens? It's not the, You're not here just to get rebuked and corrected, but guess what happens? When, when God's word is preached, we're corrected, we're rebuked, we're trained in righteousness, and our hearts are softened. And, and when we stay away from church and we don't have that repeatedly happening in our life, we're not with God's people, we're not hearing his word, our hearts get harder. That's why we see people, they start off attending church regularly, and then they attend it fewer, and then they tend it fewer, and then they tend it fewer, and then they just stop attending completely. Why? Because their heart slowly hardened in sin. Or, just a real practical thing, what's the benefit Of reading God's word every single day so that you're corrected and rebuked every single day so that your heart doesn't get hard. And when you don't read God's word daily, you're not corrected regularly and your heart gets hard. And it gets harder and harder and harder and harder. And it gets harder and harder to repent and believe. It's terrifying in a lot of ways. Nevertheless, (laughs) um, it's one of those beautiful gospel words. Uh, We read this. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Uh, I love the nevertheless, because he says, even in the midst of all of the hardness of heart, even in the midst of all of the hopelessness with that, even in the midst of all of that, nevertheless, some people actually believed. And not just some people, he says, even the authorities, even the people that just decided to kill him, even some of those hard-hearted people believed. Yeah, many. And so you say, how does that work? Didn't you just say hard hearts can't believe the gospel? Like, how, how does that work? I mean, if anybody had a hard heart, it's the people who decided to kill Jesus. So how do they believe if hard hearts don't, can't believe in the gospel? Uh, Jesus answers this in a, in a really well-known passage that I hardly ever hear applied in this situation, but it's true. Jesus said, "Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to get enter the kingdom of God." The disciples heard this and were greatly astonished, and said, "Who then can be saved? That sounds impossible for anybody to be saved." Jesus said, looked at them, and said, "With man, it is impossible." But with God, all things are possible. And so when when you hear the, the kind of discomforting understanding of how hard our hearts get, and how hard the hearts are of the world, and even that God hardens hearts, you're right to say, it's impossible. Nobody will believe And Jesus says, yeah, with man, it's impossible. Absolutely right. But with God, all things are possible. God can open ears. He can open eyes. And he can open hearts. Does that sound familiar? It should sound familiar. Because I pray it before every single sermon. Right? Open our ears to hear. Open our eyes to see. Open our hearts to receive. Isn't it redundant? Like, don't you ever get sick and tired of saying it every single... No! Why? Because if God doesn't come in and do a work, every time I preach, this would happen. I would be making the hearts of this people dull. I would be making their ears heavy. I'd be blinding their eyes, lest they would see, lest they would hear, lest they would understand, lest they would turn to God and be healed. And so... I realize if God doesn't come in and do a powerful work, every word that comes out of my mouth will just harden hearts more fully. And he does to some. But to others, God comes in and does this impossibly powerful work by the Holy Spirit, where he opens some ears, and he opens some eyes, and he opens some hearts, and people go, I get it. And I believe. And Jesus says, I'm light in the world so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. When you you believe in Jesus, all of a sudden it's like the blinders have been removed. You all of a sudden go, I see for the first time. And it's because God did a work. With man, it's completely impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Two quick points as we, as we wrap up. Because there's two parts of this I want to emphasize at the end. And one, one part is just to kind of reemphasize the warning aspect of this passage. I mean, I don't, I don't like leaving with all of the darkness and the, the difficulty of the first three quarters of the sermon. But, but it's a reminder that the majority of this sermon is this warning to us that waiting to repent causes our hearts to get hard. And so everybody comes to worship in a, in a different place. And, and some people come to worship saying, I just want to check this out. I want to see maybe what Jesus is doing, but I'm not going to believe now. I'm just going to wait to believe. And this passage is a reminder that the longer you wait, the harder it is. The longer you wait to turn to Jesus, the harder it will be for you to turn to Jesus, and your heart will become harder and harder and harder. And there's others that are coming here this morning, and, and God's been pricking your heart maybe for the last week, maybe for the last day, maybe for the last hour, saying, I know there's this sin that you've been wrestling with, and maybe you haven't been wrestling with it. You kind of like it. And you're saying, well, it's not that big of a deal. It's not really that bad. I can, like, tomorrow I can deal with it, or maybe later, or maybe when I'm older, or maybe when I was younger I would have gotten rid of this. Maybe I'm too old. I'm just too old and tired to get rid of this sin in my life. I'm just going to wait. And the response is, don't wait. The longer you wait, the harder it is. The longer you wait, the harder your heart becomes, the harder it is for you to turn back to Christ. And the reality is, why would we ever wait? If we come to Jesus and we say, I'm sorry for the sin in my life and, and I repent of it, is he going to go, not today? No. He's going to say, it's about time. <laughs> I've been telling you for so long, turn from that sin, come back. I'm going to forgive you. I'm going to cleanse you. I'm going to heal you. And I'm going to keep working in your life and shape you to become more like me. It's about time you came back. Welcome home. So don't wait. It only gets harder the longer you wait to deal with any sin in your life. Um, And then just the final thing is a reminder for us. uh, Don't never grow weary of preaching the gospel. Um, It's not trendy to actually preach the gospel anymore. Um, it's trendy to to kind of make it popular. Try, trendy to try to like rebrand or remarket the gospel. To try to try to make it palatable. It's trendy to do all of that. It's not trendy to just go out and tell people about Jesus. Um, and, and and some people just get to the point where they're like, I, "Why would I? Nobody listens to this anyway. So I'm just done." Um, and, and one of the things that stood out to me this week is that. That, those kind of responses, either just giving up on preaching the gospel or trying to think, I have to make it cool. Uh, that's all responses that are coming from our humanity, uh, from our worldliness. It's all coming from that, with man, it's impossible. And we realize that, so we want to make it possible. And God says, no, you can't do anything. Like, you can't make anybody believe in the gospel. The only way anybody will ever believe is if God comes in and does a powerful work and he grabs the heart of stone in their chest and removes it. And he puts a heart of flesh in. And he opens their eyes so that they see and they believe. Because with us it's impossible. But all things are possible with God. Even salvation of the hardest hearts. And so that's why we don't grow weary when nobody's believing the message that we're preaching because we know even the hardest hearts can be cracked open and can see and believe um, when God does a work in their life. Let's come to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come into your presence uh, so thankful for the work that you do. And when we're honest with ourselves, we we know that, that with us, all of these things are possible. We can't make anyone believe. We often rely on ourselves. We often rely on our abilities and our creativeness and our intuition. And we always seem to think that we are a much bigger deal than we are. And as a result, we don't trust you. We don't follow you. And we just go off and do our own thing. And so, Father, we ask that, that you would forgive us for that. Forgive us for our pride. Uh, forgive us for making a bigger deal of ourselves than we are and not fully trusting you to do the things that you've called us to do and to trust you to accomplish your will. So, Father, forgive us for that. Cleanse us for that. And then fill us with your spirit. Again, Lord, fill us with your spirit so we would have strength and wisdom and passion to do the work that you've called us to do. Help us to stir our hearts and minds to praise you for the impossible work that you did in our lives and give us strength and wisdom to do that impossible work as we leave here and go back to our families and our jobs and our community with the gospel. And may you save some or many through our faithful work here in this community as we share the gospel. And may your name be glorified and may your kingdom come. And all God's people said, amen. Amen.